All right, once again, if you have your Bibles, join me in Luke chapter 17. I'd like to reread one of the verses there that we read a few moments ago, and then we'll be doing the same thing in chapter 19. Let me direct your attention once again to Luke 17 and verse 6. And it says, And the Lord said, If ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye might say unto this sycamine tree, Be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. Now, let's turn to Luke chapter 19 and verse 4, and we'll reread that verse. And he, that is Zacchaeus, ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, that is Jesus, for he was to pass that way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have of sharing your word today. I pray, Father, for every believer who joins us in this service, Lord, suit a blessing for each of us. Thank you, Father, that you know each of us, where we are, what we need, and you're able to take the Word of God today and use it in ways that we never dreamed that our hearts would never consider. But we pray the Holy Spirit will minister because we know you understand our downsitting, our uprising, and know our thoughts afar off. And so, oh, blessed Holy Spirit, you who know us so well, far better than we could ever know ourselves, take this Word of God that I bring today. Help me to say the right things. Help me to say the things that will be a blessing to the people who listen in today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. For I pray these things now in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, today we want to get back to our series on trees with a message. And you might recall we had divided that into two key categories. We talked about the towering trees, and we've covered that now. Three very unique, unparalleled trees in Scripture. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, the tree of life, and then ultimately the tree of Calvary. And that's behind us now, so we want to go on and look at what will end up being the main body, at least by way of quantity, of the messages here. Just uh, trees with a message, the ones that we called... Um, the tree telling trees, telling trees, just simple trees that we encounter commonly as we read the Bible, but many times God has chosen to invest them with a message, as we discussed previously. Today I'd like to talk about the sycamore tree, and if you will, I'd like to give you a description of that that will sort of hint at where we're ultimately we're headed in this message today. And so today's title is The Sycamore, an Ordinary Tree. So I'd like to style this, the sycamore tree, an ordinary tree. And I believe that as we work down through the things that we're going to see in the message today, you will see uh, something that is a great encouragement that comes to us uh, through the sycamore tree. Well, let's look first of all and talk about a little background. What, what exactly do we know in the Bible about the sycamore tree? And what we find is that there are seven references in the Old Testament to the sycamore tree. And in general, uh, the sycamore tree is very much similar to the fig tree. Uh, its leaves, however, in appearance, are a little bit more resembling, we're told, uh, of the mulberry tree. Now, there's an interesting reference in Amos chapter 7 and verse 14. You remember Amos is talking about the fact that he never was a prophet, but when God called him to be a prophet, he reflected back on his humble beginnings, and he said, I was a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And it's kind of interesting because the fruit of the sycamore tree is uh, kind of regarded as a lower quality, less perhaps than desirable than maybe something like the fig, but a less desirable type of, of, of fruit. 
But Amos is talking about the fact that I was no prophet, neither a son of a prophet, but a shepherd and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. That's in Amos chapter 7, verse 14. We also know about this tree that it was quite susceptible to frost. Now, that's of interest to me because I have a beautiful tree in my yard called a saucer magnolia. Frankly, that tree should never have been sold in our area, but years ago I picked that tree up when the Ames store was still uh, in Huntingdon and open, and uh, I didn't know any better, and I thought, well, magnolias, I grew up in the South, I very much knew what magnolias were, and the saucer magnolia, of course, you know, the little card that comes with the tree there, they showed a picture, and I thought, oh, that would be wonderful in our yard. And we've had that tree for years and years, and as far as growing is concerned, it's flourished. But the problem is, when it blooms in the early spring, and it's an early bloomer, its blooms come out before actually the leaves come out. And if you have those blooms out, and you even get so much as one degree below freezing, it burns them. It burns them dreadfully. And if, especially if you get a night or two of this, then all of those blooms just turn brown, and they stay there for the whole duration until the leaves actually come out and push them away, and it's just horrible looking. Uh, last year and this year, uh, we were blessed. God blessed us. We didn't have any of that kind of weather, and we were able just to enjoy the beauty, beauty of that tree. But getting back to the sycamore tree, because the sycamore tree is so frost sensitive, the references that we find in the Bible allude to the fact that it commonly grows in the veil. And the veil is one of the renderings that uh, the Old Testament uses for the shephelah. That's the Hebrew word, and it refers to the lowlands. And so the tree tended to grow in the lowlands because the climate was a bit more moderate there than in what we might call the Piedmont. Now, I don't know if you know anything about some of these terms from other states, but for example, in South Carolina, where I grew up, you would have uh, the coast. That's where I grew up uh, in Charleston, uh, South Carolina. So that that's the coast. And it's in Israel, it's very much like to the coastal plain. But then if you travel to Greenville, which is where we were last weekend to see our new grandchild, then you're in the Piedmont of the state. You have a little bit higher elevation, and sometimes it can get a little cooler there, or maybe it gets cooler there with a bit more frequency than down in the, the coastal lowlands. So the sycamore tree would commonly grow in the Vale or in the Shephelah or in the lowlands where the temperatures were just a little bit more suitable to its growth. Now that's some background, but the most interesting thing about these occurrences in the Old Testament is there are three references that we have that say almost the same thing. And I want you to listen to these. I'm going to read each of them. And I want you to listen and see if you can figure out what these references have in common and then we'll talk about it just a little bit. So if you have your Bibles and you don't mind, uh, go over to the book of 1 Kings. The book of 1 Kings chapter 10. And we're interested now in verse number 27. And listen to this. Now this is a reference to King Solomon. And it says, And the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones. And cedars he made to be as the sycamore trees, which are in the vale for abundance. All right, hold, our, hold your thought in what you saw there. See if you can figure out what this has in common with the next verse, which takes us over to the book of 2 Chronicles. So go over to 2 Chronicles chapter 1, 
And this is interesting. You're going to find a nearly identical statement in, in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 1 and verse uh, 15. Just a moment here. I'm in 1 Chronicles, and that won't do. 2 Chronicles chapter 1, and we want verse number 15. All right, here we go. And the king made silver and gold, it says in this verse, at Jerusalem as plenteous as stones, and cedar trees made he as the sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. And then still in 2 Chronicles, if you go over to chapter 9, we find the third of these references, and we want now chapter 9, verse 27. And it says, And the king, once again Solomon, made silver in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar trees made he as the sycamore trees that are in the low plains, or the vale, in abundance. So, did you figure out what's in common here? Well, several things. First of all, all of the verses are almost identical. All of them are talking about the affluence and the prosperity and the amazing blessings of God that were poured out during the reign of Solomon. What is common or ordinary in the verse? Well, stones. And so when it says that, that Solomon made silver and gold as stones, it meant there was tremendous wealth uh, and prosperity and blessing during that time. And then the other comparison is it says that he made cedar trees to be like the sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. So what this is telling us is that the cedar trees were not commonly found in Israel. You talk about in the Bible the cedars of Lebanon, and Solomon had to send for those trees to use in the building of the temple. And you remember the story in the Bible about how they were floated down and and uh, but but you didn't have those high, lofty, magnificent trees so much, but sycamore trees were common. So once again, it's an it's a it's a statement that Solomon made cedar trees like sycamore trees because what's it really saying? The sycamore trees have in common with the stones that they're commonplace. You don't think much about it. Drive around Pennsylvania a little bit, you don't exactly think that stones are rare, do you? Same thing with sycamore trees. They're just common, ordinary trees. And so you see why I have entitled uh, or described the sycamore trees as an ordinary tree. So we notice the idea of the sycamore tree being plain, common, or ordinary. Now, are you ready to identify with this? Let me give you just a little hint of where we're headed in the message now in our next thought. To me, this sounds an awful lot like you and me. Sounds an awful lot like most of our churches. You know, you think about our church at Berean, and you think about the fact, well, most of us are just plain, common, ordinary people. Not people, our names are not in the newspaper, we're for the most part not wealthy. In fact, if there are those of you who are wealthy at Berean, you've done a good job of keeping that to yourself. <laughs> and uh, But most of us are just plain, common, ordinary folks. I mean, we're not celebrities, our names aren't in the paper on a regular basis, if at all. In fact, we're, we're trying to avoid our name being in the paper because the obituary or something like that's not the greatest place to see your name in the paper or the police log. But that's just kind of how most of our churches are, just many times plain, ordinary, common folk. I ask you to keep that thought in mind as we think about the sycamore tree and come to our next thought, and that is what we learn. Well, what we learn is by coming to the fact that in the New Testament, so this brings us back to Luke chapter 17. So, if you have your Bible, maybe you stayed with Luke 17 and Luke 19. What do we find? 
Well, we find that there are two specific lessons, two different times when Jesus was able to use the sycamore tree in order for his purposes to be carried out. He used a plain, common, ordinary tree. Let's see that. First of all, in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, what's going on in the context? We we read this earlier in our scripture reading, but you remember back in the context that Jesus is talking about forgiveness, and he says in verse 3, if your brother trespass against you, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. And then he says in verse 4, this really ups the ante, doesn't it? If he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Wow, how do you respond to that? I mean, you've got a high-maintenance brother here, a brother who seems to all the time be saying things or doing things that just rub you wrong and offends you. And and the apostles respond to this kind of, I think, like you and I might tend to respond to it. They really sense, wow, this is beyond us. And they say to the Lord, increase our faith. Now, I think we can readily identify with that. And there's a part of that sentiment that's good because they were demonstrating that they understood that forgiveness is Forgiveness is something that the grace of God has to produce in us. We don't readily give that to other people. We're supposed to. We're to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. And yet it seems like even though we've been the recipients of unparalleled generosity and grace in the forgiveness of our sins from the Lord, we're like that servant in the parable who... uh, his other his his uh, owed owed someone a, a small amount, and right away that servant, though he'd been forgiven a great amount, he went out and got that guy who owed him a small amount and was ready to turn him over to the to the tormentors, turn him over to the prison. And you and I just find forgiveness so many times difficult to do, and so in a sense, what they were expressing here wasn't bad. They 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 sensed their need to depend on the Lord. And so they equated that to having a greater faith, more faith. You know, I think that's how we typically tend to look at the subject of faith. And I have to be honest with you, as I meditated on that this week, it really spoke to my heart. Because when you look at the Lord's response, he doesn't go there. He doesn't say that greater faith is really the answer to the problem. He says, if ye, verse 6, had faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye might say unto the sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. So what's he really saying? Well, he's really saying, you know, it's not so much the quantity of the faith that you have as whether or not you have the right kind of faith. And what kind of faith is the right kind of faith? Well, Seeing as how he's talking about one plant and comparing it to another, let's talk for a moment about the mustard seed. Well, you know, in the Bible, the mustard seed is fabled. In fact, Jesus uses it in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 32. It's fabled for being the smallest of seeds. In fact, what Jesus says there, it's the least of all seeds. So think about it. You've got this minuscule, hard-to-see little seed that you plant it, and then Jesus says it becomes the greatest among herbs. And in fact, when you think about the mustard plant, the mustard plant can reach heights of some 20 feet and actually uh, uh, in its in its uh, breadth can be uh, another 20 feet. So 20 feet tall, 20 feet broad. Uh, that's a pretty decent sized thing to come from such a minuscule seed. 
So Jesus is saying, you know, it's not so much whether or not you have great faith as much as do you have the right kind of faith? What kind of faith is the right kind of faith? Well, from this analogy of the seed, I think we can make two observations. First of all, our faith needs to be genuine. You think about the fact that this seed actually produced the mustard plant when it was planted. You know, I have to smile at this too because years ago when we had some property, when I was a teenager growing up, we had about five and a half acres. And, you know, like most folks with a little bit of property, we decided, well, we'll have, uh, you know, a garden. And so we would plant the garden and there was a a gentleman that worked for us part-time to help with the horses that we had and also with other maintenance needs on the property. And it was just kind of a laughing matter because every time we'd go to the trouble and plant one of these gardens and for some reason something wouldn't come up, his typical response would be, seed ain't no good. Seed ain't no good. Well, that does happen sometimes. So what we're talking about now is, first of all, this mustard seed is planted and it actually germinates. That's genuine. In other words, there's genuine germination that occurs. Well, you know, I think there's a spiritual application of that because Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So first of all, we need to have genuine faith. If we're not born again, if we don't have a vital, vital, I say, relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, like in John 15, where he spoke about the fact that I am the vine, ye are the branches. We have to have a vital connection. We have to truly know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior to have genuine faith. So the things that the Lord says here, they don't so much work for people who just make profession, but they have no possession, people who really don't know the Lord, who've never really been born again. But it starts with genuine faith. That is to say, the seed really has germinated. The Word of God has worked its way into our hearts. We've received with meekness the engrafted Word, which is able to save our souls, and we've been born again. Now, there's a second thing I think we can draw from this, because obviously now, this went beyond just genuine germination. It went to growing because he says, you plant this seed, it's the least among seeds or herbs, and it becomes the greatest in terms of a plant like that. And so it's growing. This is what really convicted me when I thought about this. You know, because the Lord is not saying to me that I have to be some person that I regard as a giant of the faith. No, what he's saying to me is, is that first of all, all right, do you have genuine faith? Yes, I have genuine faith, Lord. I know I'm saved. I know I've been born again. All right, are you living in such a way day by day in your relationship with me that you're growing? Because if you're in the Word each day, if you're praying each day, then you're going to sense what I'm leading you to do, and you're going to find that I give you the resources as you draw upon me, as you walk with me each day to do the things that I've asked you to do. Well, it's not just a matter of going and telling a tree to be uplifted by the roots and cast away. It's just an example that the Lord gives. Whatever impossibility he may seem to bring along in our lives, each day if we're walking with him, if we're drawing upon his grace through the word of God and through prayer, he'll give us the strength to embrace that. He'll give us the faith to embrace that. But Jesus uses the ordinary sycamore tree to give the example, the contrast between the mustard plant and then a tree that's more deeply rooted and the power of 
the right kind of faith to accomplish great things in our lives. And I bring you back again to what he's talking about here because forgiveness is not easy. Well, if you think about it, it maybe helps a little bit to re realize that forgiveness of someone else, like an erring brother, that doesn't really have anything to do with condoning what the person has done. That's not what the Lord's asking us to do. It's about breaking free, as one person said, from the person who wronged us. And let me give you an example of this. In 1982, a deputy sheriff by the name of Stephen Watt made a routine pullover stop. He thought he was just stopping a man for speeding, which the man was doing. His name was Mark Farnham. And he pulled him over. Of course, it turned out that Farnham had a reason for speeding. And the reason that he was speeding was, was not because he was careless or not because he hadn't seen the signs. It was because he had just come from robbing a bank. Well, you know what happened. Farnham ended up shooting the deputy five times and drove away and left him for dead. Well, he lost, he eventually, he did, he survived, but he eventually lost his sight in one eye, and he also ended up with one bullet remaining in his body lodged by his spine. Now, do you think that forgiving Farnham was going to be easy for Stephen Watt? No. But Stephen Watt professed to be a Christian, but like so many of us, over this great wrong and injustice that had been done to him, he grew bitter and angry. And one day his wife confronted him with this and she said, you know, honey, if you're going to be a genuine Christian, you have to be willing to forgive this man. You have to forgive. And the Lord spoke to her husband's heart and he responded to that. Well, it turned out that four years later in 1986, Watt was involved with a prison revival. He looked across the room and who did he see but Farnham. And he walked over to Farnham and embraced the man and told him that he had forgiven him. And his comment later was, it was just like God picked up a semi-truck right off me, and I actually started living. See, beloved, that's what it is. To carry around bitterness and a lack of forgiveness is a huge burden. It's an intolerable, intolerable burden. It's a, a, an impediment, a setback to our lives. And Jesus is saying, you might not think you can do that, but I can give you the strength. You need the right kind of faith, the faith faith that's genuine and faith that's growing. All right, we have to hasten on. The second place in the New Testament is, of course, Luke chapter 19. Now, this is one of my favorite stories. How about you? You know, I've always enjoyed the Bible schools and those little children's songs. And this is one of my favorites about Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And so the sycamore tree comes out again. So on the one hand, Jesus was able to use the sycamore tree. Sycamine, it says in Luke chapter 17, but it's the same word that the Greek Old Testament uses when it translates the Hebrew of the Old Testament in all of the references to the sycamore tree. Some people think the Luke 17 tree is a different one, but we're just going to consider these as being sycamore trees. So he uses the sycamore tree as an example of faith. But now if you look at this, this is, this is even more precious because here was a man, Zacchaeus. He was interested in the Lord. Now, why do you think he was interested in the Lord? Well, he wasn't interested in the Lord because that comes naturally. 
know the Lord was working in his heart. It's obvious. So we don't know all of what Zacchaeus had heard, but we do know Zacchaeus was guilty. He was convicted of his sins. This comes out later in the story. We realize he was a tax collector and he voluntarily says to the Lord, behold, Lord, verse eight, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Well, he was a man that had plenty of sins in his life and God was dealing with him and he was convicted about this and he heard Jesus was coming. But the Bible tells us something very interesting. Verse three, it says he sought to see Jesus who he was and could not for the press because he was little of stature. Now, this has something in common with another story that we read about in Mark's gospel. And I'm going to turn over to Mark chapter two. You're welcome to join me, but don't uh, keep your finger in Luke chapter 19. But you remember the man who was the paralytic and he had four buddies that wanted to get him to Jesus, but they couldn't get him to Jesus. Verse number four says in verse two, and when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed or the pallet on which the sick of the palsy lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Sons, thy sin, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Well, you know it would be an injustice to really say this, but it does. it is sort of humorous when it talks about it. Could not see Jesus, could not get to Jesus for the press. And I think about the fact, well, the press keeps us from seeing a lot of things we probably could see if the object, if the reporting were a little better. But, but you know as well as I do that the press here is not the press as in the media. The press here is the thronging crowds of people. And what this is saying in both cases, Zacchaeus, because he was a, a short man, he couldn't even see Jesus, much less take note of him and learn more about him, even though the Spirit of God was drawing him to Jesus. He couldn't do that because he was a little of stature. And same way with the man with the that was the paralytic, his his friends couldn't get him to Jesus, and they had to be rather innovative because of the press, and they climbed up on the roof and, and dislodged some of the roofing and let the pallet down. Could not get to Jesus for the press. But how did the Lord use the sycamore tree? Well, it became an instrument. It became a vessel. It, it became the means by which someone was able to see Jesus. Beloved, you know, that really reminds me of where you and I are because we don't save anybody. It's obviously Jesus who saves, but if we can play a part in simply bringing people to Jesus, like the four fellows brought their friend, the paralytic, or if we can just help people see Jesus, if we can just point people to Jesus, the Lord's capable of working in their hearts. He has to work in their hearts. And you know, that's exactly what happens here. Jesus looked up in that sycamore tree and he saw Nicodemus, or he saw Zacchaeus, and he said, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down. For today I must abide at your house. And until this was over, we know that he was saved because it says in verse number nine, Jesus said unto him, this day is salvation come to this house for so much as he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What a blessing! The sycamore tree became the vehicle, the instrument by which this man was able to see Jesus, be brought into contact with Jesus. And that's the role that you and I play. Beloved, I think sometimes part of the problem is it is uh, so difficult to remember that that's pretty much what we are when you think about this. 
we're just instruments to help people see the Lord. And if you don't keep that in perspective, you know, if you think you're a big shot or something like that, then you go around all the time thinking, I didn't get enough credit. I didn't get recognized. But the Lord just wants us to be vessels. I read a really interesting story about a man who went down to the Washington, D.C. metro station on a cold January day morning in 2007. He took along his violin and he began to play. In fact, what he was playing was he played six pieces from Bach. They were about, they were about 45 minutes worth of playing. And during that time, about 2,000 people went through the station, most of them, of course, on their way to work. Well, at three minutes into the, his playing, a middle-aged man noticed that there was a musician playing. He slowed down a little bit, stopped for a moment, looked over towards the musician, but then hurried on his way to keep his schedule. Four minutes into the playing, the violinist received his first dollar. There was a woman who threw some money into his hat, but she didn't stop. She just kept on walking. Six minutes into his playing, a young man leaned up against the wall and listened to him, and then he looked at his watch and started to walk again on towards his tasks for the day. That's six minutes in. Ten minutes in, a three-year-old boy stopped, but his mother tugged him along hurriedly. The child stopped. He was mesmerized. He wanted to see, but the mother hurried him on his way, and other children passed by, and the very same thing happened. Their parents, you know, the parents are always the one that got to get to this place, got to get to this place, and even though the children really wanted to stay and listen, they hurried along, moved along quickly. Get this, 45 minutes into the playing, the musician only had six people who stopped and listened for a short period of time. About 20 ended up giving him money, but then they continued walking on at their normal pace. He had a grand total of $32. After an hour, so an hour into this, he finished up playing. No one really noticed. No one really applauded. No one was there to give him any particular recognition. But what's interesting is the man who was there that day playing was Joshua Bell. He is a very famous violinist, and he was there that day playing a $3.5 million violin. And the pieces that he was playing from Bach happened to be some of the most difficult pieces written. The interesting thing is, is that two days prior to this in Washington, Joshua Bell was in a sold-out crowd at a theater in Boston, the average cost of every seat in that theater in Boston was $100. $100 average cost to a sellout crowd in the Boston theater. This is a true story. Why was he doing this? Well, he was playing incognito due to an arrangement that he had worked out by with the Washington Post. They wanted to run an experiment about people's perception, about their tastes, about their priorities. And and so in a commonplace environment and at an inappropriate hour, rush hour, early morning, do we perceive beauty? Do we even notice what's going on around us? Do we stop to appreciate it? Do we recognize when we find unexpected blessing or talent in a, in a context that we would never have expected to find it? No, you know, the fact of the matter is, beloved, in our churches, we're so guilty of this, just like in that story. We so often take for granted what we have, so often take for granted the people who are around us. 
never really stop to think about that sometimes just a word in the season, sometimes maybe a card, sometimes a, a word of, of appreciation means so much, means all the world to someone. And yet we go merrily on our way, all the time take, get, taking and never much giving back in return to acknowledge, I think of that question that Naomi asked Ruth, where hast thou gleaned today? And we go through gleaning and gleaning and gleaning, and so often we don't give the credit, but Ruth did. She said, Boaz, I was in the field of Boaz, and he was a kind and gentle-hearted and generous man. And so sometimes we get hurt. We get hurt because we don't get recognized, and it seems like we do and do and do, and no one ever seems to take notice of it. And that doesn't make it right, beloved, but I will tell you this. Sometimes what makes it easier is, is if we just have to keep in mind that God has called us to be like the sycamore tree. We're just called to be an instrument. Now, thinking about those two specific lessons that we get from Luke 17 and Luke 19, where Jesus used the sycamore tree, I want to come to my key point, my overarching lesson or point in this entire message, and that's that message of great encouragement that I referred to a little bit earlier as I began the message. Simply this, you know what? You and I don't have to be high and mighty. We don't have to be like the cedars of Lebanon. You know, the cedars of Lebanon can reach a great circumference, and they can reach heights of 115 feet. But we don't so much have people like that in our churches, and you and I certainly aren't like that. We're just plain Jane, garden variety, everyday people. But the truth of the matter is God uses the sycamores and the veil for abundance. God uses everyday, plain, ordinary, common folks just like you are. In fact, God not only uses them, but it would seem that God delights to use such people. Join me, if you will, in turning over to a final scripture for today. This is in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to read these verses, but I believe you'll find them familiar. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring about or to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So do you remember back to the series we had on the book of Judges? And we found all those people that had some human limitation. We found Gideon, and he was kind of a weak and less than courageous individual at first. And we found Jephthah, and he was left-handed, and we, or, or uh, the man who, who killed the Jephthah, who was the son of an harlot. And then we find uh, the man that God used, Ehud, was left-handed to bring about the downfall of the king of Moab. And these people were chosen for for a reason. They were chosen because their human weaknesses were obvious so that when something did happen, when God really was able to use them, the glory might belong to God. And that's what it says here, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That God delights to use those of us who are common, ordinary people because then he gets the honor and the glory for this. And 
you and I don't have to fear. You and I don't have to beat up on ourselves. You and I don't have to worry because we're not famous, because we're not like the mighty and lofty cedars of Lebanon. No, just you and me. But God can use us to accomplish his will. I love a story that I was told in the Daily Bread, and it's actually told by Homer Rodehaver uh, from one of the Billy Sunday meetings. And of course, Homer Rodehaver was uh, Billy Sunday's uh, song leader. And so he told the story about a little boy by the name of Joey. He said Joey was not very bright. In fact, he said he never missed any of our meetings and wouldn't leave until he shook my hand. Then he had to go on and admit, sometimes I was embarrassed by the way he constantly tailed me, and I secretly wished he'd go away. You and I can identify with that. There's always someone like that. And But he says, then came one evening, and he said a man came up to him. A man came up to Homer Rodehaber, and he said this, thank you so much for being kind to my son, Joey. He's not right mentally. But never has he enjoyed anything so much as singing in the choir. He worked hard doing simple chores for people so he could contribute to the collection. And through the pleadings, through it was through his pleadings that my wife and five other children came to this evangelistic campaign and have now received Christ as Savior. Last night, his 75-year-old grandfather came and he was saved. And tonight his grandmother came forward and she was saved. And the man said, now our entire family is saved. Boy, what's the moral of that story? God delighted to use that young, seemingly pestiferous, mentally challenged boy, used him just like the sycamore trees that are in the veil for abundance. Common tree, ordinary tree. But Jesus used it as an example of faith, and Jesus used it as an example about genuine conversion and about how you and I can serve as instruments in the great plan of God to bring men and women and boys and girls to Jesus. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're encouraged by this today. This, to me, is a, a message from this tree of great encouragement. That's not to say that God doesn't have a place for the mighty cedars of Lebanon. God has a place for the George Whitfields. God has a place for the D.L. Moody's. God has a place for the C.H. Spurgeons. But you and I aren't so much like that. We're not like those mighty cedars of Lebanon. You and I are just sort of the garden variety every day. But day in and day out, God uses people like me and people like you. And thank God for that. May this be an encouragement. May this be a help. May we want to stay close to the Lord to discern each day those ways in which God may want to use us, even though he may not allow us to understand how we're being used at the time. If we're faithful and we walk with him, we know that he will. Thank you for joining me today for the sycamore, an ordinary tree, and may God bless you this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the privilege of looking into your word. I pray you'll suit a blessing now for each person who's joined this service today. Encourage them, strengthen them, meet their needs, and bless them in the coming week. For I pray in Jesus' holy name, amen.